Hey, welcome uh, to The Revealing. This is Pastor Frank at One Baptist Church here in Jacksonville. Uh, we hope uh, everybody is uh, staying safe and uh, enjoying their time with family at home. Uh, we know we're living through a, a, a pretty rough time, but uh, hopefully we can take this time and just uh, be able to uh, just uh, reflect on some things and, and be able to uh, remember uh, that uh, time with family is important. And uh, although, uh, you know, we're not able to get out and about, uh, being able to stay home and uh, be able to hang out uh, with our friends and family uh, is, a, is an awesome time as well. Uh, obviously, with everything that's going on, uh, we have uh, halted our recordings of The Revealing uh, and, uh, uh, for, you know, for the obvious reasons of staying safe. Uh, so what we thought we would do uh, for uh, the uh, uh, upcoming weeks is uh, maybe give you some uh, uh, some excerpts of some of our preaching that we do here at One Baptist Church in Jacksonville. Uh, what we're going to do instead of uh, uh, bringing you uh, the revealing crew, uh, we're going to take some weeks off here uh, for uh, the foreseeable future and uh, just uh, play some recordings that we've done uh, at our church uh, in One Baptist Jacks. Uh, so hopefully you'll enjoy those things. Uh, again, uh, stay safe, and uh, the Revealing crew will be coming back at you live here soon. Uh, so we love you, and we thank you. In Jesus' name. So last week, uh, we, we did something pretty crazy. Uh, if you ask many, anyone, <laughs> we started studying uh, church history. And the reason that, that I say uh, that this was crazy is because one of the things that we learned last week is that the only thing men learn from history is, is that men never learn from history. And, and, you know, you have those history buffs or, or maybe history nerds, however you, however you want to look at that. And they can, man, they can regurgitate uh, a vast array of facts and, and figures and dates and uh, places and uh, timelines and events and all this stuff but really it, what that amounts to is a bunch of just really unprofitable information and you might ask why is that unprofitable uh it's because although they can tell you what happened and when it happened and where it happened they have no idea about why it happened and how it happened and especially in the realm of church history that is the key See, if we don't know why we believe what we believe, we can easily be talked out of what we believe. Okay, I'm going to say that again for emphasis. If we don't know why we believe what we believe, we can easily be talked out of what we believe. And that's the reason, or excuse me, that's why men never learn from history. Because they never really learn from history, right? Like we never truly learned the, the how and the why Therefore, we haven't really learned from history. And we saw last week uh, when we began this study uh, that God told us to study history. He tells us in Job chapter 8, verses 8 through 10, he says, For inquire, I pray thee, of the former age. He says to ask, inquire of the former age, and prepare thyself to the search of their fathers. For we are but of yesterday and know nothing, because our days are, are upon earth as a shadow. Shall not they teach thee? Speaking of uh, the former age, speaking of the fathers, uh, those that have gone on before us, shall they not teach thee and tell thee and utter words out of their heart? And, and what he's saying there, especially in verse 9, is, listen, in, in our the book ends of our, our birth date and our death date, there is not enough time, there is not enough history, as it were, to just understand what is going on in our the few decades that we have on this earth. We have to inquire of the former age. And so we discussed uh, some dangers that we're going to face as God's people if we don't go back and learn the things that he has told us to learn. Proverbs 23.10 uh, we're told to remove not the old landmark and enter not into the fields of the fatherless. And we unpack that from a historical standpoint. Um, but doctrinally speaking, uh, we said that uh, the, the, that old landmark is the Jew. It is the nation of Israel. And the fields of the fatherless uh, are the, uh, is the Gentile history that we can so easily get lost in when we move that old landmark. 
And so we're going to start tonight by reviewing just a few things from last week uh, so we can just bridge any, any lapses in our memories uh, from last Thursday. And so we're, we, we looked at uh, building a biblical church history. And uh, so the first thing we did was to determine why an understanding of church history needs to be built. Why do we even need this? And a couple of things that we said last week, and I put the references there that we just went to. Uh, number one, God tells us to. He just told us in Job 8, hey, inquire of the former age. Um, prepare thyself, he says. And then number two, he gives us that warning of what will happen to us if we don't. And so we, we, we unpack the reason why uh, an understanding of church history needs to be built. And then we moved on to uh, formulating a biblical definition of church history, uh, specifically uh, what our blueprint was going to be or is going to be. And, and uh, this is where we discuss some of those biblical concepts that we have to get into our understanding, y'all. If we are going to ready ourselves uh, to learn and understand church history, and just in a way of review, a quick reminder, one of the things that we said is um, that God is a triune being. I know that's um, not new information to any of us, but don't lose that because God used a pattern for creation. And that pattern that he used was himself. And so we, uh, we talked about um, God's system of threes as it relates to what is physical uh, with man uh, and the kingdoms of the, this, the physical kingdom of this earth and the elements of matter and the environment. And, and we went down to atoms and colors and dimensions and how all of those uh, dimensions, I guess, or all of those areas break down into basic components of three. Um, in, in Romans chapter 1 and verse 20, uh, we see this, this principle. This is one of our keys of Bible study that, he, that the Lord gives us. We see that the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. What's his Godhead? It, it's the Trinity. It's the three but one. And so that principle is just there in nature, singing its song to us day in. And day out, if, if we would just stop and, and take notice. And, and so this becomes important because in God's system of threes, if you remove just one, any one of those three, you lose the whole thing. You, you lose the whole thing. Uh, for example, I think the illustration I gave last week was that of a line. And if you remove either the length or the width or the depth of a line, you, you cease to have a line. And, and so... That's so important. And the reason that's important is because God, God has a plan, uh, or excuse me, God has a threefold plan, and that plan breaks out into the three aspects of time that God has made. And, and so uh, for some of us, this may be the first time we've heard this. Uh, others, maybe not. But uh, this is why we're doing the review. And so as we unpack biblically uh, these aspects, uh, listen, God has a plan for the universe, and, and that plan represents the future. God has a plan for the earth. Uh, all of his plan encompasses 6,000 years of human history on this planet, and that's history or the past. And of course, God has a plan for your life, and that, we said, represents the present. And I, I, I can't emphasize this enough, <laughs> And you can probably tell because I keep repeating it, but you cannot take any part of that threefold plan out. You cannot negate any part of that threefold plan and expect to fulfill God's plan for your life. And the point is, um, if you don't know where you came from, history, right, the past, then you take that aspect out of time, out of God's plan, and you can't know where you're going. And if you don't know where you're going, and you don't know where you've been, then you, you surely don't know where you are. I don't care what you feel. I don't care what your heart tells you. You're deceived. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, uh, we, we looked at this last week, verses 14 and 15. I know that whatsoever God doeth, it shall be forever. Nothing can be put to it, right? Nothing's going to stop it. Nothing's going to change it is what he's saying, nor anything taken from it. And God doeth it that men should fear before him. Amen. 
verse 15, that which hath been is now, and that which is to be hath already been. And God requireth that which is past. And so uh, we, we broke that apart there where he says, uh, just in those two verses, whatsoever God doeth, that's the present. Uh, it shall be forever. That's the future. Uh, he says there in verse uh, 15, that which hath been, that's the past, is now, present. That which is to be, future, hath already been, past. And so straight out of his word, y'all, like we see this principle. And listen, the idea is that history repeats itself. That which hath been, or excuse me, that which is to be hath already been. Don't think that you're going to be able to yank the what has been part out of time and out of his plan and think that you can be the most effective uh, person for his plan in your life. You can't dissect history out of God's plan and expect that you're going to be used by the fullest degree by God. But to do that really would be contrary to everything that he is and everything that he has made, right? Romans 1.20. And just like everything else, you have to have that system of threes. You've got to know uh, your past. You've got to know where you are, and you've got to know where you're going, and those three are interconnected. They are dependent upon each other. You can't have the present and the future without the past. And so uh, in order to discern history, as we, again, mentioned last week, you have to have the landmarks. Proverbs twenty-two twenty-eight and Proverbs twenty-three ten once again, instruct us, admonish us, warn us not to remove the ancient landmark, which thy fathers have set. And just very interesting, the wording in Proverbs twenty-two twenty-eight, speaking of thy fathers, and then in Job 8, 8 through 10, uh, tells us to inquire of our fathers. Uh, we just, by comparing scripture, just see that doctrinal um, truth uh, that, that that ancient landmark is the nation of Israel. Proverbs 23, 10, uh, 23.10, once again, warns us that if we do, we will find ourselves in the fields of the fatherless. And so if you lose sight of that group of people, you won't be able to discern God's plan for the earth, for the universe, and for your life. Again, you'll think you know where you are, but you've missed it because you've missed the landmarks. And we said last week that all you get in modern academia is Gentile history. Uh, and that's no small issue, okay? That is not a minor thing because the kingdom of Israel, friends, was dominating the world when it came to wealth and power and authority. Uh, I think I have, yeah, First Kings chapter 10, uh, 23 through 25. So King Solomon exceeded all the kings of the earth for riches and for wisdom. And all the earth sought to Solomon. And by the way, Solomon was the king of Israel. And why did they seek Solomon? To hear his wisdom, which God had put in his heart. And they brought every man his present vessels of silver and vessels of gold and garments and armor and spices and horses and mules arrayed year by year. And listen, that is a pretty significant part of history, friends. It's very significant that uh, you can't get that in most classes or in most books today. And it's, by the way, it's not a coincidence either. Listen, there is a master plan to move and remove the ancient landmark, that piece of property that is one-fifteenth the size of California, that land of Israel in the Middle East, and we'll know where God has been. And we'll know where he's going if we don't move it and we don't remove it. And so just to kind of conclude our review time, uh, we concluded last week with this, uh, putting this definition all together. This is our blueprint. Uh, we're going to frequently visit this. It is the movement of God through history to accomplish his threefold plan for the universe, the earth, and your life. And it is the movement of the devil through history to counter counterfeit and confound God's threefold plan. And that is the blueprint that we are going to develop over the next few months. Again, not as we study church history, before we even get there. This is the blueprint right here that we are going to develop and unfold. Uh, as we trace the movement of God through history to accomplish his plan, we're going to take the word of God 
and we're going to trace the movement of Satan in opposition to God throughout history. Okay, so, so that was in, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes, maybe it was longer, who knows. That was uh, kind of just in a nutshell what we talked about last week as we kind of just sprung off into this study. Uh, so we've got the blueprint, and, and that's the definition uh, that we just talked about. That's what we're going to use uh, as our blueprint. But if I'm trying to build a house, let's say I've got the blueprint right in front of me. Okay, there's the blueprint, the definition. I've got that blueprint, but there's one problem. I cannot begin to build that house because I don't know how to read the blueprint. If I were to look at a physical blueprint, this is just Robert. I could not begin to make heads from tails from it. Now, if you're, if you're John Crosby or, or Nick LeBoy or, or a few other men in our church, yeah, you can do that. And, and you look at the blueprint, you're like, okay, let's go. I, I got it. Uh, but probably just like most of us, we wouldn't know how to do that. And so we have to take a look at this definition, our blueprint, uh, and realize that we have it, yes, but we might not really understand it. And I don't mean like we're dummies. I mean like we might not really understand what it's saying, like the, the, really, <clears throat> the depths of what it's saying. What does it mean to trace the movement of God through history? How do you trace the movement of Satan? See, you've got to be able to know how to read the blueprint. And so when you begin to study church history, what you'll see <laughs> is the inability of 99% of church historians to see what we've been talking about, the movement of God and the movement of the devil. And I'm talking about the standards when it comes to church history. I'm talking about uh, the, the resources that, that you go to to find the facts and the dates and the places and the events and all that kind of stuff. It's stuff that, that is written, though, though it's church history, it's written from, from a secular perspective. It's like picking up any other history book. But what you don't get is what God was actually doing, the why and the how. It's void of a plan that God was working. And if, it, if it's void of what God was doing, then you're definitely going to miss out on what the devil was doing. Uh, for example, uh, Philip Schaff, if you never heard that name, uh, you ought to become just somewhat familiar with, with that name, uh, S-C-H-A-F-F, -F, I believe, Philip Schaff. Uh, this man wrote an eight-volume set on church history. Like, this guy is the standard when it comes to what we're talking about in this study, okay? From a, from a, a churchianity or a 21st century Christianity or even a secular perspective, uh, old Phil here, he is the standard. So he writes this eight-volume set of church history, but the guy delivered a controversial address uh, called the principle of Protestantism in which he expressed his view, listen, that the positive values of both Roman Catholicism and Protestantism would eventually be blended into an ecumenical evangelistic Catholicism. Uh, he furthermore uh, hailed Augustine as a shining star in church history and, watch, listen, an appropriate successor of the apostle Paul. If you know anything about Augustine or Paul or Catholicism or any of that stuff, that ought to concern you. If you don't and you're not concerned, it's okay. You will be shortly. But that guy is the standard. Um, so what do you expect for him to tell us about church history if he's the standard? Uh, another one, uh, Will Durant, V-U-R-A-N-T, I believe, Will Durant. He also wrote volumes on church history. But this guy was a philosophical skeptic who struggled with the belief in God alone, and he wrote, I'm quoting to you, he wrote, in my life, excuse me, if my life lived up to my ideals, I would combine the ethics of Confucius and Christ. I'm going to repeat that in case you fell asleep. In my, if my life lived up to my ideals, I would combine the ethics of Confucius and Christ. Oh, Willie here is one of the standards of church history. Yet if his life lived up to his ideals, he would confine, or excuse me, uh, combine the ethics of Confucius and Christ. That is what we're working with, brothers and sisters, when we want to, if we want to study this thing of church history outside of the word of God. That is what we have to work with. 
And, and so it should be of no surprise that church history becomes real foggy because no one can discern anything. You know, you read that stuff and it's all Christian and spiritual, but it's not biblical. And, and someone does something in the name of Jesus. Someone calls themselves a church or they even quote the Bible and we just call that the truth. And, and that's it. And so it's in your notes this way, uh, that section that says discerning what is Christian or spiritual versus what is biblical or scriptural. And I know that we have beat that drum before, uh, but just keep listening because I'm going to beat it tonight because we have got to understand and get to the point to where we can discern that which is Christian and spiritual versus that which is biblical and scriptural. Uh, Christian bookstores. Um, listen. I frequently go to a Christian bookstore. I'm not angry at, at Christian bookstores, okay? But I'm just saying, if you've been in one, then you know this is the case. You can go in there, and you can buy all kinds of Christian books that are talking about a variety of spiritual subjects, and you can buy a bunch of Christian music to listen to and uh, Christian art to hang on your walls. But if you take all of that stuff and you line it up with what the Bible says – 90% of that stuff isn't scriptural. It's, it's not biblical. It's Christian and it's spiritual. But it may not be biblical, even if in just the slightest error. But is it still biblical? And some may hear that uh, and think that that's being legalistic or, or that's being just too strict or too narrow-minded. Listen, with the premium that, that God put on right doctrine and the premium that he put on his word, I want to be as narrow-minded as he is. I, I really do. And, and so uh, call it narrow-minded, call it legalistic, uh, but I'm telling you, it, it, it's, it's being biblical is what we ought to seek after. Christian TV and Christian radio, uh, you have all these spiritual programs on television and on the radio, these, these pastors that are preaching these kids shows uh, and all this stuff and these mega churches and, and you know, everything interviews and you take all that teaching, all those testimonies, all those interviews, all the lyrics of those songs, everything. And you compare that with the word of God. You will have to discard again about 90% of what you're hearing because it's Christian, but it's not biblical. And if it is biblical, if it's found in the Bible, it's often wrongly divided or wrongly applied. And then you have Christian evangelistic meetings uh, where you have all kinds of denominations that gather together for this big conference, right? I, I used to, I mean, I used to love going to Christian conferences. I, I did. Uh, I just thought it was really cool and I learned so much and all this, but what they do is they'll bring in someone you know, from the Billy Graham Association or the Franklin Graham Evangelistic Association or whatever, and they have these, this Christian gathering or this Christian conference and these speakers or whatever, and everyone acts like they agree on what the Bible says. They, they, everyone acts like they agree on what it teaches, and someone gives the, the gospel to people and see them supposedly come to Christ, and, and all those people who get quote-unquote saved – are divided up into these churches in the local area who hold, uh, who hold glaring differences about the beliefs about what the Word of God says. And those churches are given the watch care of the souls of those people. And we know nothing about what, what those churches believe or, or uh, the premium they put on the book or, or anything else. And their, their, their um, spiritual growth their eternity, likely, is given to these churches. And I'm not suggesting that all the churches are wrong, but like, like <laughs> how, that is the mentality of, of what we get when we just focus on what is Christian and what is spiritual as opposed to what is biblical and scriptural. And so if you're asking how in the world does this relate to studying church history, you're asking good questions. Because if we're going to see the movement of God and the movement of Satan, we've got to stop looking at what is Christian. We've got to stop looking and listening to what sounds spiritual. I heard someone, I, I teach part-time at a Christian uh, high school, and, and 
I heard someone in, in, in a uh, Zoom meeting today we had, I heard someone uh, say that they were excited that some of the kids were starting to look at things from a Christian perspective. And I know, and I know, and I know that this dear lady meant nothing bad by that. But I'm not going to get excited when people start looking at things from a Christian perspective because there's so much in the name of Christianity today that is not biblical and it is not scriptural. And so, oh, sorry, there you go. Okay. <laughs> and so we've got to determine, here's the point, we've got to determine what the Bible says. I don't care how it looks. I don't care how it sounds. I don't care what others say. I only care, and I have to believe that you only care what the Bible says. And if you don't only care what the Bible says, then you need to check yourself. And I encourage you to, to start caring about what the Bible says. I don't care about how much someone talks about Jesus. I don't care about what church someone goes to. None of that matters when it comes to church history. You can talk about Jesus all you want, but it could be the wrong Jesus. You can talk about what church you go to. It could even be Baptist all you want, but it, it, it might not be biblical just because it's Baptist. What does the Bible say? The Bible has to be, it must be the authority that we use in discerning church history. And if we're going to just look at things through what is Christian and what is uh, spiritual, we're going to get lost. We're going to get lost in the fields of the fatherless, wondering and thinking we know where we are, but having no clue. We have got to determine what is biblical. And again, the problem with most church historians I put it in your notes this way, is that they have eliminated the Bible as the standard. So they don't have any gauge in determining what is the working of God and what is the working of the devil. Like, listen, the, I, I believe this, the greatest attribute of God, of all his great attributes, is the fact that he speaks, is his word. Because without him speaking, we know nothing about him. We know nothing of his love. We know nothing of his grace. We know nothing of his wrath. We know nothing of the cross. And so if he spoke, then we ought to determine what he said. This ought to be our authority. And so what happens when we eliminate that or remove that as our authority, they end up calling good what is the working of the devil. And we're going to see that all through church history. And conversely, calling evil what is the working of God. And when you start using the book as the standard, as your authority, listen, the Christian community will start calling you heretical. They'll say, that's heresy. That's narrow. That's legalistic. That's unchristian. What do you mean you don't go to the, the whatever, whatever conference or the whatever, whatever evangelistic thing? What do you mean you don't watch this or like that pastor? That's so narrow-minded. That's so unspiritual. And my response to that is, who cares? about being unchristian? Who cares about being unspiritual? I don't care about that. The Bible is going to be our standard, and the Bible is not Christian. And we've got to get into our thinking. We've got to get this thing down. And if we're going to get into this thing of church history, then you've got to realize that we're going to have to name names. We're going to have to call things as they are. Uh, like Paul did it, like Jesus did it, you know, we're not gonna um, we're not gonna be ugly and hateful and spiteful to people, but we're gonna call false doctrine out where it is. We're gonna name names because if we don't, then you're not gonna know what is what, who is who. And, and when you do that, friends, you're gonna be called unloving. You're gonna be called unspiritual. But man, what a if that is the spiritual or the Christian view of of unloving, then be unloving because it is not the biblical view, friends. Because that is being loving. And so I want us to look at the key in setting the ancient landmark. So if we're going to begin to track the movement of God, right? We have our blueprint. And we are, are trying to discern what it, we're going to unpack it, what it means to track the movement of God, what it means to, to track the movement of Satan in opposition. We've got to go to the very beginning. 
because when you walk into Genesis chapter 2, uh, you walk into that garden, uh, you're walking onto the most cherished piece of ground in all of the Bible and in all of history and in this entire planet. And, and there are some things that we've got to know about this place, about this land, and that being letter A, the original king in Eden. We are not going to unpack in great detail these things because most of us, I think, uh, have, have done that uh, many times. Uh, but as we continue to study, we will unpack it more. Uh, but just for our, our collective understanding, know that before Adam ever set foot in that garden, and I say set foot, before he was ever, uh, life was breathed into him and he was formed of the dust of the ground, the devil, whose name originally, of course, was Lucifer, meaning light bearer, he reigned over this kingdom, over this uh, land, and is where his throne was. <clears throat> and now most of us, I think, as I said, understand that when God created Lucifer, uh, Lucifer was created the most powerful angel ever created. And, and we've talked a lot about that in time past, uh, places like Ezekiel 28, 11 through 15. Uh, he says, moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyrus, and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God. And, and so what begins to happen here is God is telling Ezekiel to tell uh, the king of Tyrus, um, <clears throat> though it's interesting that there has never been, historically speaking, a king of Tyrus. There has been a prince of Tyrus, a ruler of Tyrus, but not necessarily a king of Tyrus. But what, what God is doing here is it's what, like what Jesus was doing with Peter when he spoke to Peter and he said, get thee behind me, Satan. And he was speaking uh, to the power behind the man. And this is what God is doing here with Ty the king of Tyrus, as it were. He says, and you can tell right off the bat by looking in verse 13 that there's something more going on than just this physical rule. But he says there, thus saith the Lord God, thou sealest up the sum full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. And there's only like three people that could have been. The serpent, Adam, and Eve. And, but he says, thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was like covering. The sardius, the topaz, the diamond, the barrel, the onyx, the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald, the carbuncle, and gold. The workmanship of thy towers and of thy pipes was prepared in thee in the day that thou was created. Thou art, Lucifer, uh, the anointed cherub that covereth. And I have said thee so. He was anointed. He was established there by God. Thou wast upon the holy mountain of God. Thou wast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Let me move my, uh, here we go. Thou wast perfect in thy ways from the day that I was created till iniquity was found in thee. And so note that he was in Eden. He wasn't ruling and reigning uh, somewhere in heaven, right? And, and what was that iniquity? Oh, well, Isaiah chapter uh, 14, verses 13 and 14 tell us that he wanted to ascend into heaven. Well, from where would you ascend into heaven? Uh, that means you're not in heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. Again, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. And, and so th that pride, that desire to be worshipped and be like almighty God, was the, his iniquity and the result of, uh, excuse me, the result of his iniquity that was found in him, excuse me, is that he, he loses his authority in the Garden of Eden as the ruler, as the one reigning over that kingdom. He loses that authority. And, and when that iniquity is found in him, he's no longer allowed to rule and reign from Eden. He loses his position. He's no longer Lucifer. He becomes Satan or the adversary, and he loses the throne in that garden. And that's why when you walk into Genesis 3 and chapter 1, I don't know if you ever wondered why the serpent all of a sudden has some metaphorical axe to grind uh, against Adam and Eve, specifically Adam. Like, why is he wanting to, to, to tempt them? And, like, there has to be something going on. Like, was he just created an evil serpent to, to – to, no. And so by comparing Scripture with Scripture, we see what happened there. And so when you go into Genesis 2, you find that God has set a new king in the Garden of Eden. Uh, it's King Adam. And King Adam is given domain over everything 
on the earth. Genesis 1, 27, 28, that God creates man in his own image, and the image of God created he him, male and female created he them, and God blessed them and said unto them, hey, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. Uh, we'll talk about that later on. And, and watch, subdue it, have dominion. Those are kingdom words. Those are words that um, uh, point to uh, uh, um, authority and reigning and ruling. And he says in Genesis 2, 19 through 20, that uh, Adam, to Adam, y'all, was given the authority to name the creatures and, and, and the animals. And whatever Adam called every living creature was the name thereof. Like, like this, he was the king. <laughs> he, was, he was the guy in charge. And so... Listen, God has the plan for Adam, and God has a plan for the earth that he put Adam on. And so please remember the significance of this piece of property, this property of Eden, because it is where all of history begins. And there's something to that. It's where God's plan for the earth begins. He has a plan for the earth, and he has a plan for Adam. And it all begins right here. And listen, when Jesus comes back, this is where all history is going to end, as far as time is concerned, with Jesus ruling over and from this piece of property as the king of the nation of Israel. And every nation of the world and every person in every nation will come and bow the knee to the king of kings and the lord of lords. Just as in the day of 1 Kings chapter 10, under the reign of Solomon. And listen, that's really what 1 Kings chapter 10 is all about. It's a picture of the end of time, the culmination of God's plan, and that event where Jesus is ruling and reigning from this piece of land. Yes, historically speaking, uh, we looked at 1 Kings 10 earlier. That was true of Israel, but it's also a, a prophetic picture of that, that thousand-year period, that millennial reign of Christ. And that's why we say around here that the theme of the Bible is all about a king reigning on a throne. It's how history opens and how the Bible opens. And it's how history closes and how his, uh, the Bible closes. And, and we Christians, we, we blow it because we only see 2,000 years in a 6,000-year timeline. We only see... Uh, church history or us we only see our lives even if i could say it that way we want to interpret six thousand years of church history and try to understand it in the scope of a two thousand year time frame from, from the time of the apostles to the time of the rapture of the church we can't do that and so you may be asking thinking about this this piece of property so how do you know that this is the same uh property uh where he's going to do that you know Honestly, it's how we, we learn anything in the Bible and how we teach anything in this church, and it's simply by comparing Scripture with Scripture. So, so I, I threw this chart up here for you, uh, and it's just like the one in your notes. If you want to kind of fill those blanks in, go ahead. Uh, but you look at these Scripture references in Genesis chapter 13 and verse 10, and Amos 1, 5, Isaiah 51, 2 Kings and Genesis 2, and you see how, how God likens Eden to the land of Egypt, and in this case Sodom. And the house of Eden being located near Damascus. And when you, when you look at the, these minor prophets, the major ones too, when you look at these prophets, how they're prophesying about the, the day of the Lord, that second coming of Christ, and, and the, the cities and the locations uh, that, that he gives us, because again, he preserves his word for us, you can't help but notice some similarities. And, and so I, I put there... <clears throat> Uh, in your in your notes as well, a, a very um, elementary <laughs> illustration of uh, what I'm talking about here. So you have Eden uh, at the top there, Mount Ararat, uh, <clears throat> down there on the left, the Nile, and then Ur over there at the top of the Persian Gulf. Um, let me see, yep, they're there. And, and so <clears throat> why this becomes important for us is because this is a piece of ground that God gave to Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel back in Genesis chapter 15. And this is the piece of ground that will belong to Israel in the millennium, uh, in Ezekiel 47 and 48. It's the ancient landmark, y'all. 
It's where it all began, and it's where it all ends. And it is the key to understanding church his- history, uh, but specifically church history. This is the piece of ground today known as the Fertile Crescent. Listen, this piece of ground talked about in the news more than any other land, country, piece of ground anywhere. Uh, it is the focal point of the world. And the reason for that is that God enacted a plan almost 6,000 years ago, and that plan is about to come to fruition, and it's all going to end the same place where it began. And all of history has been moving between those two events, what happened in the garden and what will take place in the millennium from that piece of land. And don't miss that the current events today with coronavirus, don't think that that is not playing a role in moving us to that event. But I want us to take a look. You guys are doing a great job. You all still look like you're somewhat awake. So, so man, I'm so glad. Thank you. <clears throat> so, so let's look at how this applies to us today. Because I want us to see what was really taking place in that garden. And this is going to kind of spring us into our next study, uh, maybe next couple. But um, I want us to really notice what was going on in the garden there in Genesis chapter 3. Because somebody is coming back to claim his territory, right? That, that's that's uh, the serpent. That is Satan, formerly known as Lucifer. Somebody is claiming back. That's why he's there in Genesis 3.1. Okay, somebody is coming to counter God's plan through Adam. Because remember, it was first God's plan through Lucifer. And again, if you're missing some of this, hang in there. We will unpack this in, in weeks to come. But uh, somebody's coming to counter God's plan because it was once through Lucifer, but now God uh, changed the venue as he often does when someone fails his plan. Now it's through Adam. And finally, somebody's coming to counter God's plan for the earth. And so when Satan comes against God's plan for Adam and he comes against God's plan for the earth, I want you to notice what he does, and I want you to notice how he does it. And it's so important that we notice it because, again, that which hath been or hath already been, God requireth that which is past. That which has been is now. And so if you don't think that what Satan did in the garden is what he's going to try to do to us today, then you are sadly and sorely mistaken. And you may have already been duped. I hope not. And, and, and I know as a church, we're, we're going to get what, what, what's happening here, um, but um, don't, don't let this get by you. So what was his strategy? First, he tried to get Eve, he tried to get the woman to question the word of God. He said there in Genesis 3, 1, Yea, hath God said, ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And listen, I know we've talked about this many times, but again, don't miss this. He didn't come up to her and say, hey, Eve, baby, you want to go get drunk tonight? He, he, he didn't say, you want to go sleep with another man? You want to go, you want to go get high and, and, and go you know, do all this other stuff? It wasn't obvious. Look, the serpent was more subtle. So he comes in the form, so to speak, of, of an angel of light. It's what he does in 2 Corinthians um, 11.4. He says, yea, hath God said? And so he's throwing God's name on it. We see that today. He, he's, it's, it's a Christian label. He's throwing God's name on it. Yea, hath God said? And, and don't miss it. This is the first recorded words of Satan in the Bible. And they come in the form of a question. And look what they're questioning. They're questioning the word of God. There's something to be said about that. Do, do not miss that because that which hath been is now Second, he changed the word of God. Because Genesis 2.17, he, he, he engages um, Eve in this, this dialogue here, and he says, But of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, um, thou shalt not eat of it. Like this, here's, what, here's what God really said. From the day that thou eatest of it thereof, thou shalt surely die. So this is, was the dialogue between Eve. So Eve is saying this. Hey, listen, God told us this. In Genesis 2.17, and, and, and uh, that is what God said. Therefore, thou shalt surely die. Look at Genesis 2.17, mark God's words. But in Genesis 3.4, the serpent says outright, ye shall not surely die. 
See, God was lying to him. See, he, he wouldn't have even said that. He, he would have said, you know, what, what God, here's what God was saying. Here's what he really meant. You see, he, he simply tried to change the word of God. And, and don't miss that because that which hath been is now. And finally, he tried to reinterpret, or he did reinterpret the word of God. He says, well, here, here, God knows this. God knows that in the day that you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be open, and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. But let me tell you what God meant. And listen, there are men today, and we'll, we'll close uh, with this statement later in just a little bit, but there are men today, there are churches today, there are pastors and priests today, there are colleges and universities today who will be glad to tell you what God meant by what he said. But listen, if you want to know what God meant by what he said, just read what he said, and he'll tell you what he meant by what he said. You don't need me to tell you what he meant. You don't need Pastor Frank to tell you what he meant. His spirit by his word will tell you what he meant by what he said. And so what, what the serpent is saying here is that, listen, God, God knows this isn't a bad thing. It's really a good thing. Here's what God really meant, and don't miss that, because that which has been is now. And the approach was religion. That was Satan's approach. He changed the word of God, and he put God's credentials on it. God doth know. And the next thing that you see in, in verse 6 there is Adam denying the word of God, what God told him in Genesis 2.17, and he hands the crown, that, that, that crown of, of dominion and authority, of reigning over that garden, that, that land, he hands the crown, so to speak, back to Satan because he begins, he falls. And it says there in Genesis 3, 6 that uh, the woman took of the fruit thereof, she ate it, and she gave it also to her husband with her, and he did eat. And that is why in Matthew 4, 8 through 10, when, when the Spirit, in a time of fasting, the Lord Jesus is led of the Spirit into the wilderness uh, in a time of temptation or testing for 40 days, that Satan comes and tries to tempt him three times, and but one of them there he tries to tempt him with the kingdoms, all the kingdoms of the world. And he says, all these things will I give thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. And even in his fasted, hungry state, the God-man would have said, you silly little devil boy, you do not own all the kingdoms. But he did not say that. Because the uh, dominion and authority of the kingdoms of this world were transferred back to Lucifer, back to Satan. And that is why 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 calls him the God of this world. And listen, if you miss that sequence of events, that God is working a plan and Satan is coming in to counter it, and that there's a, a pattern that develops here. This is kind of what this means for us. There's a pattern that develops here. And listen, it continues all throughout the Old Testament. And all through the Gospels, and all through the book of Acts, and all through the church age. And if you miss that, you will miss where God has been and where he is going. You'll miss where Satan has been. You'll miss where Satan is going. You'll be in the fields of the fatherless, thinking that you know where you are, thinking that you know where you're going. But you're actually about to walk into one of Satan's landmines. The same landmines he's been laying over the last 6,000 years. And if you're picking up on what you need to pick up from this, like this, this practical application, uh, well, I'm going to end it here uh, with this, this application for us. And it's going to, as I said, uh, lead us into uh, our study next week. But if, if you're trying to pick up on what you need to be picking up on, uh, what do I need to know as I begin to walk through this? You need to start, for one, as we said earlier, stop looking through a Christian lens. Stop looking through a spiritual lens. That sounds hunky-dory, but, but it, it's not going to cut it. Start looking at things biblically. And, and you have to be in the Bible, guys. We got to be in the Word. We got to read it. We got to study it. We got to know it to be able to have a biblical lens. But we need to be looking for Satan to move in opposition to the church. Again, we're studying church history. So here's what we're going to be looking for as we begin to unpack 
through the book of Acts uh, and church history. We're going to be looking for Satan to move in opposition to the church by getting men and movements and institutions to question the word of God. You do not have to go to a YouTube video very far to find a pastor, preacher, teacher question the word of God. You do not have to drive very far down the road to find a church where you will find a pastor or a teacher to be happy to question the word of God, though he may not realize he's doing it. Though he may. We need to be looking for men and, and movements and institutions who are trying to change the word of God. And I will tell you from the get-go, you cannot have multiple translations or versions of the Bible that say glaringly different things, and they all mean and say the same thing. You just can't, you won't, and you don't. And we need to be looking for Satan to be moving in opposition to the church by getting men and movements and institutions to reinterpret the word of God. Well, here's what, listen, listen out for the next time someone says to you, uh, well, this was a poor translation. Here's what, here's what the word should say. If, if they're reading from a King James Bible, here's what the word should say. Well, well here, here, here's what it, it really means. Well, I like, I like this translation better because it really encapsulates blah, blah, blah. Like you need to start picking up on those things. Because the general consensus in the church today is, man, it's so great to have all of these, these different uh, translations among us today. And we live in this, such a time of spiritual revival and richness uh, because we get this, this great, full idea of what God is trying to say to us when we look at all of these different verses and translations. I've had people say that to me. You, you need to be watching because if we're not looking... If we're not looking uh, for the landmarks and we're not keeping our eyes on them, we're going to lose sight. And we're not going to see things from a biblical standpoint. We're going to see them from a Christian standpoint. And those statements about different, all that different stuff, those are Christian statements. They're spiritual statements, y'all. But they're not necessarily biblical. And we need to note and be watching for him to be doing this all under the guise of religion. It's not going to happen from uh, the Satanists at, at the, the, the Satan church down the road. It's not going to happen from, from some, some obvious false teacher. It's going to be someone who, who, who throws God's credentials on it. And when we start moving into church history, oh, excuse me, by the way, uh, they're going to claim to be uh, instead of claiming to be a voice against God, they're going to claim to be a voice for God. And, and listen, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that that these institutions and these preachers and these men and these women and you know whatever else, I'm not, I'm not insisting that they are intentionally doing these things. Though I do believe there's part of that. There are some that that truly believe. That, that the Bible needs to be interpreted for you, that, that it needs to be changed to make it more palatable, to make it more relevant in the 21st century. There are those that believe those things and that will teach you those things. And they will claim to be and believe that they are being a voice for God instead of being a voice against God. But it's that same strategy that, that Satan used in the garden. So from what power do you think that's coming? Rather than, than Satan saying, don't listen to God, uh, listen to me, I'm going to be God. He, he didn't do that. He said, let me, let me come help you out a little bit. You got to be careful for that. And so when we start moving into church history with that blueprint, that definition, understanding um knowing how to read the blueprint and knowing what to look for, we'll be able to see what God has been doing for the last 2,000 years of what we call church history and what Satan has been doing to counter that in the last 2,000 years. Listen, you'll learn so much about what has been going on in the name of Christianity today uh, that is anything but biblical. It, it is anything but biblical. 
And once you begin to see this strategy and plug it into the year 2020, where we are now, it really is eye-opening. Because if you want to know what the issue is in the year 2020, you need to know it wasn't and isn't anything different than the plan that Satan was using in 4000 BC in that garden. Because today, somebody is coming against God's plan. And he's coming against it in the name of religion. And there are all kinds of voices that claim to speak for God. But if you listen to what they're saying and you compare it with what the Bible says, you will find there is a mastermind behind all of it. Listen, I'm not saying that you need to like hate people, right? We don't hate people. We hate false doctrine. We hate every false way because we love his word, Psalm 119. But we are going to, to, through a biblical lens, be able to see through things. And we ought to be able and willing to, to love his word so much and care about right, good doctrine, because he does, that we speak up. That we don't fall like anything that every wind of doctrine, excuse me, every wind of doctrine that, that claims God's credentials. And, and what's going on in the 21st century of Christianity is someone is trying to get us to question the word of God. Someone is trying to get us to change and to reinterpret the word of God so that we can doubt the word of God. And listen, if you can doubt the word of God in any place, then you have reason to doubt it in every place. If we can question God's character in, in any iota, in any sense of the word, then we ought to ask, is he able to be trusted at all? Is this book able to be trusted at all? If there is a question about why one translation says this and why another says that, um, and, and well, we just can't really know unless we know the original languages and all that jazz, then I guess it's just not for me to know the Bible. And if we don't know the Bible, then we don't know God. And, and I think I'm getting into my message for next week, so, so just forget that part. We'll get there. But just listen, most Christians fall for it hook, line, and sinker. And that's the real issue today. And I think some of you know what I'm talking about uh, when I talk about this thing of the Bible, and some of you don't. And that's okay uh, because that's where we're going to pick up next week. We're going to look – again, I told you we're going to lay the groundwork. We're going to spend adequate time laying the groundwork, understanding what is going on here, having this blueprint to help us to be able to identify – when we see the, 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 the what and the where and the when, oh, that's why that happened. Oh, that's how that was. That's what was really going on behind the scenes, spiritually speaking. Like, like we're looking past the physical. And, and we will not fall into the trap of calling something that God was doing evil because we think it was Satan. That's what, that's what maybe a Christian mindset will give you. And we won't call something that Satan was doing and think it was good and call it good. Oh, that was God. Man, what a blessing. Praise the Lord. Because we're looking at it through a biblical standpoint because we know the enemy. We know the plan. We know the strategy. We know the book. So, Father, thank you, God, for the book. And thank you, Lord, for the, for the, the, the time that you've given us tonight, Lord, to unpack this. And, and I pray, God, that you would help me that you would help each one of us here tonight to shed and forsake a, a, a spiritual or a Christian or a religious worldview. But God, that you would help us to get into the book. And God, I don't even know that, that we need you to help us get into it. We sometimes just need to get past ourselves and maybe past uh, uh, our laziness or whatever it is um, and get into the word. But God, help us, Lord, as we do that. Open our eyes, Lord. We need your spirit. You promised to teach us all things. Help us to see the move of God and then the move of the enemy in opposition to you. Father, we love you. God, we thank you. We praise you. And Lord, Lord as, as we... <clears throat> 
as we, as we learn these things, some of us for the first time, some of us, you know, anywhere in between, whatever, God, I pray that we wouldn't just like think intellectually about these things. God, I pray that we would see them in light of our lives, right? Like not selfishly or pridefully or in a layout of seeing mentality, but okay, if that's, if that's the mode of operation, if that's what's been going on, where is that happening in my life? Where is that maybe that happening in this church age? Is that happening at One Baptist? Is that happening at, with, with, with my family or, or whatever? So God, please give us the eyes to see, the ears to hear, Lord. And, and until next time, Father, we, we love you. Uh, we, we, we trust you. We, we praise you. We thank you. By your grace, Father, bring us back next time in Jesus' name. Amen.